The problem is that we don't give up our way easily. There's a noise that we make when we're giving up our way, when our sponsor's going, no, look, no, I want you to do this. I don't want to do that, but I want you to do this. Your way is willful. I want you to come over and we want you to do that. And then we make the noise that all sponsors look for. All right. That's, I love that noise. Okay. And you know that the person is agreeing with you, but they don't want to. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride, take what you want, and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hear ye, hear ye, from Studio A, deep in the heart of Texas, that was the voice of Mr. Sandy Beach that you heard at the beginning of this here episode, episode number 246, and you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment. We're going to get right into Sandy B here. Long story short as I'm way out ahead of myself recording this because me and the lovely Mrs. M and the kiddos are going on a vacation and uh, I will be out of pocket. So I want to go ahead and get this uh, uh, in the in the can, as they call it, and out there and ready and waiting for you all. Uh, in fact, by the time you hear it, I will be back from uh, vacation. Well, most likely. I don't know exactly when you're going to be hearing this, but uh, it'll be around that time. And wh- as I've said before, the only reason that I mention that uh, when I'm I'm gone and I'm getting ahead with things is because... I get so much listener feedback from you guys, and I know that many of you are tuning in to hear the listener feedback on the end of this and, uh, uh, you know, hear uh, not only yours, but other people's feedback. Um, But it's going to be a while before I I get caught up with something like that. So if you've written in uh, and you're wondering, where's my feedback? Well, just wait a little bit, okay? Uh, I will get caught up eventually. All right, so Sandy B, this is, if you have never heard of Sandy B, Sandy Beach, he's, he's, uh, he's gone on to the big meeting in the sky now. Um, 
I realize that there are a lot of you are going to be saying, oh, yeah, Sandy B. I know Sandy B. But there are a lot of people that we have coming into the fold here who have not heard of Sandy B. They don't know who he is. And this may be their first exposure to him as a speaker. He is absolutely fantastic. Uh, if you can, after this, you could probably find all sorts of Sandy B. stuff out there on the Internet if you're interested in doing that. But this one is called God is Everything. And I want to let you know where I got this uh, mp3 from. It comes from a gentleman who is actually going to be on the podcast here eventually. His name is Tim M. And he was referred to me from Joe Mook. I believe Joe Mook actually sponsors Tim. And uh, Tim has a ton, he has a blog or a website, I guess you want, whatever you want to call it, with a ton of step PDFs, tapes, uh, the blog with all sorts of articles, all sorts of material, all for free. And I'm going to put this in the show notes for you. But if you want to access this, uh, he's at first, F-I-R-S-T, 164, like the first 164 pages of the big book, first164.blogspot. Dot co, C-O, dot UK. Obviously, he's from the United Kingdom, um, but you can go there and kind of uh, poke around his website yourself if you feel like doing such. So, once again, this is Sandy B. The name of this talk is God is Everything. And usually, like I said, we would have plenty of oh, listener feedback at the end of this, but I will not this week. But tune back in uh, next week, and we should have plenty of listener feedback. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Mr. Sandy B. Enjoy. And by the way, if you have any comments on Sandy or anybody else, please feel uh, please feel free to reach me at John J O H N at SoberSpeak.com. Enjoy. Well, I just want to. Um tell you how grateful we are that all of you came here. It means a great deal to me and to the guys that put this together. And if you haven't been here before, it's going to mean a great deal to you because of the people sitting around you. We don't advertise this in Tampa. So all the people in Tampa, some of them know there's something going on, but it's it's designed so that we... Don't end up with a, a room full of people that already know each other. Something made you decide to come down here, and you're with other people who made that same decision, and you're going to really enjoy each other's company because you're all seekers. You didn't come down here to have fun. You're not going on vacation. You're down here because something inside of you said, let's try and get closer to this wonderful creator that we have come in contact with. And this is a wonderful environment for that to happen. I got two two things occurred to me. One is the um, we have a library back there, and it's um, we hope that you will peruse the books and find a few that speak to you and take them back to your room look at them, maybe get familiar with the author, and then when you go home, you could buy that book because our big book in 12 and 12 urge us to go out into libraries and spiritual teachers in order to go on the individual path 
that takes place in the 12th step. But it's an honor system, so we would like you to put the book back. That would be. <laughs> and there's a book list in your handouts. And another thing in the handouts are pertinent passages from the big book and the 12 and 12. And those were just selected uh, by me as probably the most powerful language in our literature concerning getting close to God. And those phrases have been really are meaningful to me, and I hope they are to you. And I think that's about it. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the first lecture is on, uh, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or he's nothing. Unlike the other years when we had wild topics like me, Tars, and you, Jane, I can't believe... <laughs> I actually gave a talk on that, and then we had one on Charlie McCarthy and Edgar Bergen. And I think people began to wonder, what am I attending down there? doesn't seem to have anything to do with AA. So in order to put all that to rest, the four lectures are on sentences out of the big book, three of them and one out of the 12 and 12. And so here we have, right in the... Near the end of the chapter of the agnostic, this sentence, we had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or he's nothing. And um, it's followed up with God either is or he isn't. What is your choice to be? Isn't that a funny sentence? What is your choice going to be? And, you know, I've been around uh, 45 years now, and this is what dawned on me that in life there's only one free choice that we ever have. All the rest of them aren't free. They aren't free will. There's only one. You can either choose God or not choose God. If you choose God, then God makes the choices for you. You follow what I'm saying? If you choose him, then he is the guider and we follow the guidance that we got so as we choose God we give up ever having choice again if we don't choose God our character defects are in charge it's only an illusion that we have free will well I normally I'd like to be honest but in order to get this deal my greed says do this most of the time I'm faithful but lust just said go do that and we suddenly find that one or the other of our character defects is behind the alleged free choices that we're making. So I would just lay it on the table. Somebody could disagree with me. There may be other people out there that there really is only one that we're absolutely free to make. And that's to choose God or not to choose God. And we, I read somewhere, you choose God and live with the consequences, or you choose not to have God and live with the consequences. And we all are familiar with what it feels like to not choose God and live with the consequences of choosing alcohol. And um, so this is an interesting point in our sobriety. It comes in the chapter of the agnostic, where... The possibly the major transformation that we're going to make in AA is made. 
because we're going to go from our old ideas about God or non-God that we bring here, and we're going to be persuaded to put those ideas on hold and see where this new path leads us. So we could come in uh, an atheist, an agnostic, a person who had God and lost them, a person who now hates God, a person who this, all that. So we all fit in these categories, and we arrive here, and this is where a some sort of a transition is going to be made so that we end up seeking God. Now, seeking is a big word in our program. God couldn't would if he were sought. I just love that sentence, if he were sought. And then in the 11th step, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact. So we see the word sought is a a very interesting word. And I've told this story before, but um, when I got to thinking about what is seeking, when's the first time I ever heard of seeking? And my life, the first time I heard of seeking, was in grammar school when they introduced a game called hide and seek. Somebody hid, and then you sought them. I found out that seeking them was trying to figure out where the hell they were. That was what seeking was. And um, so some little girl went and hid. Okay, go find her. And I would look, and I would look, and I would look. I'd look in all the obvious places. But I'll tell you, after about three minutes, if I didn't find her, I didn't give a damn where she was. (laughs) My interest in seeking was over. I call that a low level of seeking. That's That's the low level. Then the next one was one notch up. It was a it was a higher level. And it occurred around Easter when six pounds of pure chocolate were hidden somewhere (laughs) by my mother. And she said, ready, go. And boy, I'll tell you, this was a higher level than looking for somebody hiding in the closet. This was serious seeking. And I would zoom and I would zoom. My sister's zooming and we're going and we're going and we're going. But if I didn't find it. After about five minutes, which is a pretty long period of intense seeking, I started whining and begging for clues. Am I hot? Am I getting close? Am I here? Am I there? And I I think if I didn't find that, if my mother didn't finally give me a tip off, I think at the end of 15 minutes, I would have said, the hell with the chocolate. I'm just, I'm tired of looking. And so, but it was a higher level of seeking than the hide and seek game. And then later on in life, when I was a teenager, I had a golden retriever. And I came home one time and was told that he had run away in the morning into the woods over there and hadn't come back. And I went over there and I called that dog's name and I stayed out there until it was dark. And then when I went to bed, I would go out there every couple hours and call his name. And then the next day I did it. And then the next week and then the next month. And then the next six months, I'd be home from school. I would still go out there because he could be there. He could be walking out of those woods any day. I think I went, did that all the way through prep school and college. Whenever I came home, I I couldn't resist going out through it. He could be there. I know it's been about six years. 
But he could still be there. Dogs live a long time. He could, and I would go out and look for him. And uh, I think it sounds silly, but 20 years later when I would go home, I'd just swing by there on the small chance <laughs> that this old dog could be walking out of the woods. Now, that's a pretty high level of seeking. And it was the highest that I ever had until I started drinking and was out of booze and needed a drink. You all know that that level of seeking, there's got to be, I had a bottle around here somewhere. It's got to be here. Jeez, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. I don't find it. The nearest liquor store is about 15 miles away. Guess who's going to get dressed and go down there? Guess who is not going to stop until they find this? And that's pretty high-level seeking. So the question we can ask ourselves, what level is our seeking of God at? The hide-and-seek, the Easter bunny, (laughs) the lost dog, or could it even get as high as I need a drink? And it puts me into mind that most of the time, our level of seeking God is pretty low. And yet, nothing could be a bigger reward than to continue to seek at a higher level of intensity. And that's all done by a decision. It's all done by making a decision to come here. It's all done by making a decision to go to listen to some spiritual teacher. It's all done by setting aside time for prayer and meditation. It's all done by us, the individual. You suddenly realize this is not a group activity anymore like the other steps. We did this, we did that, and the sponsor's helping us, and, uh, we're, you know, we can talk about it and this and that. This is done just by me. I do my seeking all alone. I have reading a book, I'm spending, it's where am I spending my mental energy? Am I committed to getting closer and closer? And it, um, am I committed to getting the full potential out of steps six and seven? Am I really wanting God to get rid of everything? Because that's the only way I can really find him, is to have the barriers removed. Am I willing to shoot for 100%? Am I willing to let the word perfection come in to my vocabulary? I may talk about this, maybe redundant with another lecture, but the big book talks about progress, not perfection. But the 12 and 12 talks about perfection. And I read some letters and history stuff that um, in the beginning they wanted the four absolutes. That was part of the Oxford group, and there was a big push to make them part of AA. I mean, you know, come on, we're using them. It's, and uh, those of you from the Midwest know that the Cleveland Intergroup still prints a pamphlet about the four absolutes, and it says AA on the back. And there's nothing New York can do about it because they were there before New York. <laughs> and... Uh, so this is part of, uh, people get sober, get sober in Cleveland, Akron, they get this pamphlet, oh yeah, this is part of AA, these absolutes. Well, absolutes imply perfection, uh, hope, or honesty. Come on, folks. 
unselfishness, love, and purity. Uh, those were there, and the, the deal was to try and achieve that perfectly, absolutely. And Bill saw that and said, geez, if I stick this in with these drunks that are coming in, they're going to go crazy trying to <laughs> achieve perfection. And they'll, because they're perfectionists now, unless they can do it perfectly, screw it. You know, that was my attitude. Well, if I can't do it perfectly, I don't want to, I'm not even going to try. And so he felt it might be misleading or difficult when we're new to even entertain the concept of doing something perfectly. But in this letter, he said, I snuck them back in, in step six and seven in the 12 and 12, and particularly in step six, where he uses the sentence, having been granted a perfect release from alcohol. In other words, we were granted a perfect release. It was lifted from us. Why can't we attain perfect releases from all our other character defects? We have to raise our eyes towards perfection. So suddenly we see a shift from progress, not perfection, to progress towards perfection. And that makes me squirm a little because I'm not shooting for that. I'm settling for something in the middle. And there's that great line in the 12 and 12. We tend to settle for as much perfection as will get us by. And that's what I want as a businessman is a reputation for being honest. I don't want to be locked in to being honest, but I'd like people to think I am. So I will, they do what it takes to get known as a person with an honest reputation or whatever it is, reliable, uh, faithful. I want my wife to think I'm faithful. Well, don't you want to be, fa- I gotta keep, let me keep with just an option open. You never know something miraculous could come my way. And I don't want to be locked into turning it down ahead of time. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it when the situation arises. I'm sure I'll make the correct decision, but I don't want God to have shut off all possibilities, so. I don't want to go too far in getting rid of lust. Do you understand? So you can see that this seeking, is it's all tied in to that. How, what level of seeking are we interested in doing? Um, and before I get going on the uh, comments about the chapter to the agnostic, I want to share with you and run something by you that um, occurred to me recently, and it's called the God Phenomenon in AA. I made this up, so don't think, well, what page is that on? <laughs> it isn't anywhere. It's just, it's just a way of looking at things. And this is what I think the God Phenomenon is. When we first arrive here, we are confronted with this word on a steady basis. We pick up the steps, and there it is. We open the big book, God on this page, God on that page, God on that page. We go to a discussion meeting, everybody in the room. Well, then God did this and God did this. So you can't escape the word. You can't escape it. 
This three-letter word is appearing everywhere. And we have different reactions to it. I can't stand it when they say that. Bothers me. It does, it, it, it's just all these things. I said higher power for five years rather than say the word God. And then after five years, I said, you know, you can say God a lot faster than you can say higher power. I said, yeah, you're right. So for pure efficiency reasons, I shifted <laughs> and actually allowed myself to say God, you know, like I was going to be struck dead. Um, because my old ideas told me, you don't want to be caught dead saying God. Somebody will laugh at you. So I don't remember why, but it was very important. So we have a word that appears all over AA. But if we had an AA dictionary, we could probably have meanings for all the other words in AA. But if you open the AA dictionary to the word God, it would be blank. It would have no definition. It would be a word with no definition. It would just be a word. And yet we are stuck with doing something with this word. And we actually don't really do anything except the steps. And then as we take the steps, something happens we begin to have a consciousness of something. Unnamed, but something is happening inside of us. And we call this God consciousness. We can call it word consciousness for all I care. But a consciousness of something is taking place. And... When we get to the promises in the ninth step, we see a sentence that says, we suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. This wasn't something that somebody explained to us. It happened to us. It happened inside of us. And we suddenly went, wow, that word is doing something to me. You see how personal that is? There's nobody explaining this event to you. It is simply happening to you. And then in the um, 12 and 12, I just brought this. It's on the last page of the uh, pertinent promises, page 109. Bill writes, you see what we're seeing? We're seeing a process of a person's relationship with that word. And on there, page 109, Bill writes, We could predict that the doubter who still claimed he hadn't got the spiritual angle and who still considered his well-loved AA group his higher power would presently love God and call him by name. No one told them to do that. No one said, this is going to happen. You just find yourself using the word. And nobody explained what the word means. No one, it just happened. And I got thinking about that. Wow. How could I summarize what I just told you about? What is this phenomenon? And I looked at it as you're now at the very beginning of your journey in AA. And I would say, 
in the beginning was the Word. And the Word became God. And I just, it just hit me. That's exactly what happened to me. I, I used this word because everybody else was using it. I didn't know what it meant. I just said it. And then I talked about it. And then I said, but not, you know, and all of a sudden, the word itself became real. And that was the transformation that I had. And that, just for lack of a better term, I just called it the God phenomenon. That it happens to everyone here. The steps are designed to cause that to happen. And it happens no matter what our old ideas were when we arrived here. That that's where we end up. And I I just think it's fascinating when you consider the backgrounds of all the people that come here, that we all end up in the same place. And I think for me it would have helped if someone had said the term God as you understand him. Now, we know in the beginning we go, you can call anything you want. It will be your higher powers. And the most common one that you hear around the country is doorknob. Well, I made a doorknob by higher power. And that, and you do hear that, but you don't hear someone with ten years saying it. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? I've been sober ten years, and the doorknob is still my higher power. <laughs> it somehow went from doorknob to God. It somehow went from John Wayne to God. It somehow went from my AA group to God. It's you know, so you can see that this. But how did it go to God? Did someone convince you that God existed? Did they tell you who He was? Did they? Do? No. You experienced something, and you automatically said God. So in a way, in order to understand God in AA, you have to experience God first. So it's sort of God as we experience him. And from the experience comes a very limited understanding, because no one can understand God. He's a mystery. But we know the results that come from this power. And to me, that if you ask me what my definition of God is, it's all the miraculous things that have happened to me since I followed these steps. It's the return of peace of mind. It's the, the power to see all of you as my brothers. It's, it's the power to see the world through God's eyes instead of my eyes. All of that is my definition of my personal relationship with this great mystery that is behind the universe. And I just felt, um, isn't that fascinating? And then as you're sponsoring people, you watch it happen to them. You, you start out with a militant atheist and you go, that's fine. Just like our chapter of the agnostics said, that's fine. Don't worry about that. Just have an open mind and we'll go. Chugging along. Oh, okay. So he and then remember in the third step in the twelve and twelve, the one time vice president of the American Atheist Society, boom, had no trouble getting through the hoop. Remember that hoop in step three in the twelve and twelve? He had no trouble because it's an infinite diameter. You can come through. And then if you simply keep that open mind, the God phenomenon takes place. 
And it's the greatest phenomenon that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous is to have come true that uh, sentence, uh, I think it's on page 23 when we go, the central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way that is indeed miraculous. That's a pretty strong statement for someone to make. The absolute certainty that my Creator, whatever that is to me, has entered my hearts and lives in a way that is indeed miraculous. And then we get to the, we suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And so we find this um, sentence. We had to fearlessly face the proposition that either God is everything or else he's nothing. He either is or he isn't. What was our choice to be? And so you can see that almost all of us make a journey in that chapter from non-believer to open-mindedness. And as the, our AA journey continues, to believer. And the belief that we have is based on experience. It, it isn't based on faith. It actually happens to us. Once you experience contact with your own creator, there isn't much need for faith. It happened. It's, it's, a, it's a guarantee. You personally felt this presence. And um, we're in a different league now. Now we're not seeking to have more faith so that we might eventually find this higher power. We're seeking now to improve our conscious contact. We're seeking to continue this wonderful experience that took place um, in this great journey, in this phenomenon of God. Um, the last line in the chapter to the agnostic describes this journey. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. Isn't that a great sentence? The trick is to find out where near is and go there. I was going to make a joke that they gave me. You've seen me here. I don't want to go through my personal health, but, you know, all the uh, retreats prior to this one, I was limping around because my knees hurt so much. I got two brand new knees. Now I need a hip. So they got me a golf cart, which I'm grateful for. And I was going to tell people that uh, for 20 bucks, I'll take you to dinner and back every night. (laughs) For 50 bucks, I'll take you on a tour of the entire retreat center. And for 100 bucks, I'll take you to near, (laughs) which is the (laughs) which is that spot in the retreat center. Where God is, if you go there, he will disclose himself to you. So the trick is to figure out where the hell is near. And as it turns out, we're looking in the wrong place if we're looking out there. Because that came later on on page 55. We found the great reality deep down within us. It's only there that he may be found. So as we are 
newcomers to this spiritual journey, we suddenly realize nothing out there is of any importance whatsoever. There's nothing out there that needs to be changed. With our slogan back here, this was just a spiritual saying that I heard on a CD and I just went, wow. It just says it all. Stop looking out there. It's all in here. And that's where the seeking goes. So how do you go in there? And that's what the 12 steps are all about. We can't go in there. We, we're blocked. And uh, what's blocking us from going in there is our ideas about out there. That's our story. That's the world that we created. The one that doesn't isn't real, but it's the one we live in the middle of. And it's all these ideas that we told ourselves growing up. Those kind of people are terrible. The government is this. The God hates you. Everybody's picking on me. I'm a victim. Whatever story we put together, they're all dramatic. And the problem is that we thought them up. And as soon as we think the thoughts of another component to our story, we emotionally feel it. So if we say it's unsafe to be in that room with that guy, we will feel frightened. Totally in response to the thought we had that it's not safe in there. It could be safe as can be. And we all remember this from whenever it was the first time that you thought to yourself in your bedroom, there might be a monster in your closet. I remember that. And I went, yeah, there could be a monster. I thought it was fun to think that. There could be a monster in there. And I went, yeah, there could be a monster. And all of a sudden, there was a monster in there, and I needed my father in there in a hurry. I, I, was, I wouldn't even go over near that closet. I had created this frightening thing. And so we do that in so many aspects of our life. It must be tens of thousands of little storylines, none of which are true, that have to be gotten rid of so that we can return to God's world. And so that's what our journey is in sobriety. It is a return to where we started from before we made up a place that doesn't exist and lived in it. And so what does the 12 steps do? They destroy all of our old ideas. It's captured for me the best in that great line. The idea that somehow we can drink like other people has to be smashed. Everybody knows that line. And can you picture it? Here's this idea that was obsessing us. Well, maybe this time, maybe this time. And finally, our sponsor and two other people came along with a brick and went, boom. And that was the end of that idea. It just isn't going to come up anymore. And so getting rid of old ideas is what all of spiritual growth is. It is that's the entire program is letting go. Um Maybe it's in another lecture, but it is, they call it a program of action. And the action verb is letting go. Now, that doesn't sound like much action, does it? Boy, I'm rolling my sleeves up. Okay, what do I do? Let go. I know, but what do I do? I want to get, I want to really get involved. Yeah, just let go. 
And then we realize this is our grip on our life. And you remember, I'm not an alcoholic. And you go, well, you're in the nut ward, you're wearing a straight jacket, you're doing it. You remember how hard it was? Okay, I'm an alcoholic. Well, look at what's left, all the a thousand fingers. Okay, I am an alcoholic. I got rid of, I'm not an alcoholic, and I went through, I am an alcoholic. Well, how how much progress have I made? There's a long way to go. And it's, that's where willingness comes in. We had to reconsider or die. That that gave us the motive to possibly begin the journey of being wrong. The great freedom of being wrong. Um, before I get off track, I better keep going. Yeah, letting go. Okay. Um, it's very difficult for me to believe that that is what's missing. Um, my mind is constantly coming up with another course of action other than letting go. You know, maybe I should buy another spiritual book. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should. I'm, I'm all over the place. And I don't want to let go of something. And we will hold on to those things like we hold on to character defects. Bill surmises that the reason we hold on to a lot of defects is that we like them. I like getting angry and feeling a little superior to the jerk I'm arguing with. I, there's, there's a lot of pleasure in that. Do you know what I'm saying? And there, my pride really enjoys feeling superior to other people. Well, I'd try to explain it to him, but I don't think he could grasp the full <laughs> <laughs> impact of what I'm thinking. Um, it, it, there's just many of them. The, um, we love being a better baseball player than somebody else. It isn't just that we love the game. We love the fact that I'm better than that guy. There's a great sense of it. I'm a better businessman. I'm a smarter investor. I like that. I like feeling better than. And if that doesn't work and you get tired of feeling better, then feel worse than. Oh, I'm the worst bastard you ever lived. I'm a piece of crap. And then we go, yeah, I kind of like wallowing. Anybody wallow? Just wallow around in self-pity. Oozing from every pore, as Bill writes. This is, if we don't do that, we can hardly keep our story alive. Because it's the, the, the world that we lived in, the only building material are thoughts. That's the entire world that we live in is composed of thoughts. And they'll start fading if we don't keep thinking them every so often. So if you still have a resentment over the girl that left you in high school for that jerk, you have to go back and stir it up a little bit or it could actually disappear. (laughs) It could actually no longer be in your emotional repertoire. So I would recommend at least every five years, go back to when you were a sophomore in high school and think about Lulu. And bring up, God 
damn, that really, that damn guy, now I'm frightened. He's a better guy than I And the whole thing, and you get it going, then you can put it back because it'll, it's got a shelf life of at least five years. So we have to go back to all these things and make sure they're activated so that they're still part of us. Because after all, we practically are all our resentments. We practically are. All of the fear, anger, feelings that we have ever since we were little, that's who we are. And that's the world we live in, and we refeel all of those. And it was suggested to me, I think that's in here somewhere, that there is one action that um, has been called divine And if anybody knows, it's called forgiveness. To err is human, to forgive is divine. And forgiveness fits in to the overall scheme of things. If we're going to forgive something, we're going to let it go. That high school event never happened when I forgive it. And I would ask you all tonight to imagine, just for the sake of imagining, that you, in an instant, could forgive everything that ever happened to you. Every unkind word, every failure of your father to show up at the sporting event, every failure of your father to be there when you were little, every failure... Every unkind thing the government did, everything that the police did, everything that... Just go back through your life. All the things that we've kept track of that hurt us. There's got to be thousands. I mean, if you think back on it, it's it's a hopeful. Now, imagine that you forgave it all. We can't because it really takes God's help. But let's just imagine that everything that happened to us was forgiven. It no longer existed. It was nowhere. Do you see that you would really be nobody? What would be left of you? The only thing that would be left is your spiritual side. And that's who you really are. In other words, this whole identity that we created is mostly resentment and memories of things that we aren't going to forgive because they shouldn't have happened for one reason or another. And when I reflected on that, I said, my God, the only thing that would be left is I'm a child of God and I'm just going to do what he wants me to do. That would be the total identity. And we were afraid of that. We sensed that fear. Bill writes about it in the third step in the 12 and 12. You remember when he said, I'm going to turn my life over in the You know, Bill writes a lot by advancing an idea and then telling you what your reaction is going to be to that (laughs) ahead of time. So he advances, well, why don't you turn your entire life over to God? And then the guy says, what? I'll be the hole in the donut. You remember that? I'll be a non-entity. That's exactly what I was trying to describe if you forgave. I... What would my role be in my life if I turned everything over to God? How about zero? How about zero? I would have no role in my own life. I would simply be a servant 
carrying out what God wants me to do. Now, this will guarantee total happiness. It will allow you to see the universe as you've never seen it before. Why don't we all volunteer? Well, I want to be in charge of something. <laughs> Can't you hear your ego going? Wait, whoa. I got to reserve a little of this for myself. So if you imagine your world and God's world, and we want to go to God's world, but we'd like to keep some of ours, I'd like to be in charge of something. I'll give up drinking, but I'd like to be in charge of the other areas. All right, I'll give up having affairs. My sponsor started me down the list. You know, look, if you're going to have a good marriage, you're going to have to give up. Okay, so the AA program consists of not drinking and not having affairs. I'm glad we've got that. I'm in. I, I can do it. And every day he had another thing. Well, you know, you're taking money out of the cash box at the Marine Corps. That's embezzling. I, I would suggest you give up. Okay, give up drinking, affairs, and embezzling. Glad we've got it straight, and we're on the, um, and I'm ready to go. I'm, I can do it. And every day, and give up this, and they give up this, and they give up that. And you can see, if we're going to try to seek God, we have to be willing to give up the whole freaking thing. <laughs> and then, I don't have a job anymore. You follow what I'm saying? I don't have a job. I'm just carrying out it's like going back in the Marine Corps. Here's the orders of the day. Go do them. Go fly at 10. Come back. Go to this briefing. Boom, boom. I didn't have a say-so in any of that. I just carried it out. And you know, it was fun. Once I got the hang of that, it was fun just carrying out orders. I never thought I'd admit that, but I really ended up liking it. Um... And that's kind of what seeking God is about. It is um, coming to grips with the fact that this is not going to be pain-free. We're going to give up our way in order to live his way. We're going to give up our way. Now, let's see if we could come up with a description of one problem that includes all problems. My best guess is not getting your way. Not getting your way sexually, not getting your way financially, not getting your way health-wise. In other words, when we start describing a problem that we have that's bothering us, it's one of many ways of not getting your way. In other words, a situation happens. The situation is just a situation. But you don't want it to be that way. Do you see what I'm saying? I didn't want it to rain on the day I was going to play golf. Normally, rain is rain. But this day, it rained on your golf day. And you didn't want it to rain because now you can't play. So we're very angry at the rain. Isn't that a strange thing to get angry at? The freaking rain. I can't believe it. And I generally carried the belt. God did that. He didn't want me to play. He hates me. I knew he hated me, and it's been that way my whole life. Thanks, God. <laughs> you see, so um, now, if when things don't go your way, you're unhappy, 
and miserable, then we got to come up with a solution to that. How can we find happiness? Simple. Learn how to control everything so that it does turn out your way. And that was what we were trying to do when we came in here. If only she would do this. If they only listened to me down at work. If the, you know, and so we were managing life in order to make ourselves happy because we saw no other way. What other way is there if we get unhappy because we don't get our way? The only answer I ever saw was try and control it. And when eventually they wouldn't control, I would just get drunk at them. I would just get drunk at them. And then suddenly we're confronted with a rather unusual proposition. And that is, why don't you just not have a way in the first place? Now, if you didn't have a way, you know, things go my way. Well, what if you had no way? Then nothing could ever not go your way because you don't have one. Well, how do you not have a way? You turn it over to God. That's it. So the secret to getting rid of problems that where things aren't going your way is to turn your way over to God. And then when it rains, you just go, well, I guess I wasn't supposed to play golf today. I guess I'm supposed to be doing something else. Oh, the phone's ringing. Oh, it's a 12-step call. Oh, now I understand why it rained. I'm supposed to be going on a 12-step call. I go over there. And the guy is happy to see me. I bring him to the meeting. People are talking to him. And I see his eyes light up. And I go, wow, watching a guy's eyes light up is better than getting a birdie. Who thought a golfer would ever say that? You golfers out there, isn't that, boy, that's about the highest event in life. Well, unless it's an eagle. You, you, you know what I'm saying? But suddenly, an avid golfer is saying, oh, no. Watching a guy's eyes light up is way bigger than getting a birdie. Woo! Whoever thought that would happen? It wouldn't have happened if we stayed in charge. It would not have happened if we weren't willing to get rid of our way and see what God's way is. And the problem is that we don't give up our way easily. There's a noise that we make. When we're giving up our way, when our sponsor's going, no, look, no, I want you to do this. I don't want to do that, but I want you to do this. We're going to, your way is willful. You've got, I want you to come over and we want you to do that. And then we make the noise that all sponsors look for. All right. That's, I love that noise. Okay. And you know that the person is agreeing with you, but they don't want to. They don't want to. It's with great reluctance and resistance that I make the sound, all right. And that is giving up your way. Can you feel it right there? You just, okay, my way would have been, and then we go over here. And then, much to our surprise, it turns out better than if we had gotten our way. The trouble is, newcomers are misled by the way we describe that event. Because we describe it this way because our ego takes over. So I decided 
rather than play golf, I'd go on a 12-step call. And it sounds like we're spiritual giants who decided to put someone else's well-being ahead of our own. We leave out the part about it started raining. (laughs) And that's why I wasn't playing golf. There's a thing called spiritual pride where we take credit for God's work. And that's one of the hardest things about the program. I'll get into that later, is um, taking credit for God's work, and we don't even know we're doing it. It happens very subtly on the inside. God turns us into such a strong person, we don't need him anymore. It's a, it happens after... Ten years of sobriety, something like that, and you just you don't realize it, but you actually think you're str- been made stronger by the program because it feels like you are, but you're being held up totally by God. But it feels like you're stronger, and that can be an interesting proposition. Um. Oh, there's a paper in your handout by a Dr. Natcher. We had it last time. You don't need to read it now, but I stuck it back in there because this is a medical doctor who decided to break ranks with all of the uh, addiction teachers out there, all the treatment centers, and this is what addiction is, and this and that, and this and that. And he claims that addiction is caused by being separated from God, and that we're trying to find God, which is missing in our life through sex, drugs, rock and roll, gambling, or whatever. And, of course, I just thought the guy was brilliant, and, you know, that this medical doctor would be doing that. And he used AA as an example of all of this. And then he makes, he kind of misreads AA towards the end of his paper, where, <laughs> where he says, we keep going to AA, and now we're addicted to AA. And I wrote him an email saying, you're misunderstanding the spiritual path if you think we're going here because we're addicted. It is a desire to pass it on is why we're here. We've been given the spiritual freedom in through an awakening, which, which is what he says is the answer to all addiction is awakening. And, and I thought it was a well-written paper, but part of an awakening which occurred to Bill Wilson. There's two parts. One is he has an experience that is just the purpose of being alive is to have an experience of that magnitude. But part of the experience is you can't help yourself from spending the rest of your life trying to pass it on to someone else. And that's why we keep coming here, to find another newcomer to light their eyes up. And so I've always thought that, I'll talk about that, the Big Bang of AA. I always thought it was Bill Wilson's experience because it included, he couldn't stop himself from trying to carry this thing to the whole world. Even when he's broke, even when he's down and out. Yeah, but we got to get this thing going. we got to get it out there. It was because of that, that awakening, he couldn't resist. He couldn't, he couldn't stop carrying the message. I mean, I, I I didn't know Bill. I could have met him, but I never went up to New York. But I knew Chuck Chamberlain. And I know the California guys will tell him he was out driving 
two and a half hours every night to go talk somewhere, and people would come to see him. He just never stopped. It was um, he was my example of how to be a perfect servant, and the energy to do the task will be given to you on the spur of the moment. So you can be exhausted and still go out and talk to somebody for two hours and you're not you're going to feel more refreshed than when you started because God gives us the energy to carry out his work as we're carrying it out it feels like we don't have enough oh I can't get I couldn't make it over there and talk to her and then you go do it and at three in the morning you don't even want to go to bed you know because you've been energized so much by this um and so anyway, he makes the statement, and I want to read it because I love this quote, is not, and this applies to all human beings, is not the real problem that we are absolutely powerless to get rid of the longing for God. This longing is there. It started the second we began our journey away from God by making up a story that we're separate from him. A lot of people call it the prodigal son and the prodigal daughter. So all the time we're out there, there's something missing in our lives. We don't know what it is. We forgot what it is. And we think maybe more money will fix it. And we think that maybe more sex will fix it. Maybe alcohol will fix it. Alcohol really did look like it fixed it. But he centers in on, isn't the problem that we're powerless over getting rid of the longing for God? We just can't shake the fact that there's something missing. We can't lie down in bed and go, there, I'm totally complete. Everything is fine. There's nothing missing until we get in here and can have that awakening. And then we realize we were seeking the wrong thing all along. We were going on false errands to try and fix this problem. And the person, oddly enough, who made the same comment in our AA history was Dr. Young. That's exactly what, in the exchange of letters between Bill and Dr. Young, when Bill wrote many years later to thank him, for the work he did with Roland Hazard, who came to see Ebby, who came to see Bill. And um, Dr. Young sent Roland on a spiritual quest. He said, that I've done everything I can for your disease of alcoholism, and I failed. Don't come back to me. There's nothing. I can't do anything more for you. And he said, so I'm going to die of this? He said, probably. I have heard of a few cases where they had this spiritual experience, this spiritual transformation that I've been trying to cause with you through therapy, I would advise that you go out and try and have one of those. So he left, you know, he was told, you're going to die unless you can find a spiritual experience. He became a seeker. How did he become a seeker? He was told he was going to die. That will help people become seekers. 
kind of happens to us. You come in, you've got a fatal illness that only a spiritual experience can come. Well, maybe I'll reconsider. What are spiritual experiences? I suddenly have an interest in spiritual experience. Why? Because I'm going to die if I don't find one. Well, that that's hardly an intellectual decision, is it? It's a savior-ass decision. Um, and so Roland has it. The hot thing then was the Oxford movement. And so he got in that and had the spiritual awakening got set free from alcohol, then he showed Ebby Thatcher how to do it, and then Ebby showed Bill. So anyway, when Bill writes him and thanked him and everything, he wrote back, no, I didn't know what happened, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, after all my years of studying alcoholism, I really think that the search for alcohol is a low-level thirst for God. And that we're actually trying to solve the God problem by drinking. And we were desperately hoping that this would fix us so that we would be complete again. And alcohol is so similar to a spiritual experience that we thought we really had it. There were times when I was so grateful for alcohol. I said, geez, I'm so lucky that alcohol's in the world because all I have to do is go in there Hey, Fred, give me three of you know what. And then one, two, and then for that moment, I was complete. I don't know if you remember that. It happened to me around the third or fourth drink. Is that right, Jack? Somewhere in that that neighborhood. And you suddenly went, yes. I'd look around the bar going, these are the greatest people I've ever seen. Look at them. Look at them. I hadn't even met them yet. They just, I knew they were God's kids. They were, look at that, look at that. Now, ten more drinks. Hey, asshole, come here. <laughs> that was the end of the spiritual <laughs> transformation uh, that the alcohol, but there was that moment when, yes, this must be what it feels like. To be complete. I'm there. I don't need anything. You know, they'd go, let me buy a round of drinks. Well, that's your rent money. Hey, got to live a day at a time. I'll get the rent. Who cares? You know, there was just, I'm complete. Don't need any. I remember that feeling. Right at this moment, I don't need anything. That was the greatest feeling from alcohol. Well, that's what a spiritual thing is. Um, I think the final point that I want to make is if God is everywhere then it's impossible to be away from God it's absolutely impossible how could you move away from God if he's everywhere I'm up at the front of the room I said I'll go back in the back of the room then I'll be away from him well He's there. He's everywhere. So how is it possible for us human beings to become separated from God? Just think about that. How could if he's everywhere, how could you possibly be separated from God? And here comes the trick. You make up a story that you exist separate from God and believe it. There, the trick's out of the bag. That's how each one of us became separate from God, so that we we lived in a world 
where there was no God. It was our world. And we're the center of it. That's what self-centered means. Means wherever I turn and look, I look at the universe from where I stand, I, I'm at the center of it. And man's been doing that for a long time. I mean, the best intellectuals on earth looked around the solar system and said, I wonder what the center of the solar system is. It's obviously where I am. <laughs> That's pretty freaking obvious, man. I'm looking and there's all this stuff and over there and I'm here. So they had to make the earth the center of it so that they would be at the center of it because that's what our ego wants. And when in later years the observers started going, we don't think earth is the center, they were ready to kill them. Why? Because they'd have to get rid of all their old ideas. That would be a hell of a thing to change from earth to sun. I've been living at the center of the solar system for 50 years and you want me to suddenly make the sun the center? I don't care if it is. If I kill you, we can keep the earth as the center. <laughs> That's how far it went. That's how hard it is to become unself-centered or to become unearth-centered, which is what had to be done. And so we've created this. That's That's how separation occurs. It's the only way you can be separated from God is to make up a story that you exist as a separate person and separate from God. As a matter of fact, there is no God where I live. So I created a whole universe where there's no God. And then I went around telling people that. I don't see any God. No God in my life. He never helped me. I don't know. I never got tapped on the shoulder. Here's God. I never got. There's no God. And you know something? There wasn't. If you decide there is no God, there is no. That's what that sentence says. He's either everything or he's nothing. He is or he isn't. What's your choice going to be? I choose that there is no God. Bam! Magic. There is none. Now live with it. Got lonely in there, didn't it? It was very lonely. Wasn't loneliness one of the key things of being an alcoholic? I am so freaking lonely in here. Why are you lonely in there? I'm the only one in here. And each one of us was the only one in our world. That's a hell of a place to live. So I wrote a story, and then we'll wrap it up. And... Uh, this is my attempt at the human dilemma. They found him broken and weeping in the domain of the four horsemen. The skies were black with terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. His lungs were aching from breathing air, polluted with pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. The ropes of resentment and self-pity held him firmly in the cell of loneliness and fear. They lifted him gently, carried him to an inn. They bathed him and tended to his wounds. They fed him and loved him until he stopped sobbing. They took him on their path towards the light. They took steps to lift the veil from his eyes. The vision of their world slowly begin to manifest itself 
and he saw sights he never knew existed. He experienced the sunlight of the spirit, the great reality, and the presence of infinite power and love. His whole attitude and outlook upon life has changed. He stood at the last step of the bridge of reason. Remember that thing in the big book? He saw clearly that one final step would take him into the world of the spirit. Suddenly he spun around and strode deliberately and purposely back the way he came. At a brisk pace, he came down from the mountains into the familiar darkness and stench of the secret caverns of his domain. His work had been detailed and thorough. No exits, no portals for light to penetrate. He settled into his favorite chair, a throne at the exact center of his world. The future once again belonged to him. He realized how close he had come to placing a God before him. He smiled as he prepared to die of absolute misery. He smiled because he knew that when he died, he would die totally in charge of the whole universe. That's our deal. It is. There was, what is that? Oh, my goodness. It's a long time ago poem. I'll think of it. But the line in the middle of it that uh, captured me was, To serve in heaven or to reign in hell are the choices we're trying to make. To serve or to reign. And guess what the ego likes to choose? I want to be in charge. Um, so this is the struggle that we're fighting. That's why it's so hard. That's why it's so painful to take seeking to another level. Your heart wants to do it. You come to something like this and you go, yeah. You ever get that? Yeah. Yeah. And then we go back in the room. We go, oh, you can't make that. I mean, then it starts. Then the counter argument starts because we're... Our world is being threatened. The one we run, where everything is ours. You just came up with the idea of giving up some of that world. And there's going to be a backlash. Which is why the seventh step talks about pain as being part of the spiritual journey. But every time we take a step forward and go through that pain, we realize it was worth it. That it's just, it's like getting in shape. It's really painful in the beginning. But the more you do it, the more it becomes something you look forward to because of the great rewards we get. So I hope that one way or the other, you take a look at the dynamics with inside of yourself and realize every time you're going to try to advance, there's going to be a backlash and just dismiss the backlash and keep going anyway. 
Because the only pain is in resisting growth. The only pain is in resisting letting go. That's where the struggle is. And isn't it a silly struggle? You can have everything if you just open your hand. You can have everything. You remember that story about the monkey and they put the food in the bottle and he reaches in, gets a handful, and they come to catch him. They just walk over and grab him. And he won't run away because he ain't going to let go. He ain't going to let go. That's us. The thing that's stopping us from having it all. I want to keep this too. I don't want it all. I want this and all of it. And so let's all join together and let him go. That's it. We'll wrap it up. We got dinner coming up and then we'll be back here later. Thank you all for your attention.